Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, Pastor Tim kicks off our new mini-series from our long study of the book of Genesis. We're calling My Brother's Keeper. This week, we begin looking at the story of Cain and Abel and ask ourselves, what is our responsibility to our neighbor? As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Pastor Tim. If you got your Bible, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 4. It's a story about two brothers, Cain and Abel. And this morning, I want to take you on a bit of a journey. Um, this is a passage that uh, I've... Uh, actually, the, what I want to share with you this morning, I've never taught this before. And so in some ways I've been wrestling with how do you teach this and how do I show kind of some of the things that uh, as I've studied the story that the layers begin to unfold and I start seeing these new things and how do, how do you teach all that and how do you show all that? And so I'm going to do my best, um, but my hope this morning is that uh, I want to help you see this story, which for many of you may be really familiar, especially if you grew up in church. Um, if it's unfamiliar, that's, you're, you're in an advantage this week. But if it's familiar for you, uh, this is one of those stories where um, I want to help us see it with fresh eyes. And uh, I, what I want to try to do, this is at least how my brain works when I'm uh, studying the Bible, is uh, a question, I want to show you how a question will open the door to another set of questions, which will open the door to another set of questions. And then if you keep opening doors, at some point, what you discover is that initial story that you thought you knew, you, you, you don't know as well. And uh, so I'm going to try to mimic that journey with you all this morning. Um, a warning is... I might break one of your favorite stories. There's one name that. Uh, my hope is, uh, stay with me through it all. My hope is that actually uh, what you'll discover is the story actually has more to teach, I think, than, um, than is in initially on the surface. And so uh, we're going to look at the story. We're going to ask lots of questions of the story and try to approach the story from a fresh perspective and say, okay, okay God, what, what is it in here that is applicable to us? With that said, let's begin by reading it. Uh, Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. Uh, She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now, Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Not so. 
Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. We'll pause the story there. Uh, the, the, okay, so that's the question. The question should open doors to more questions. We should open doors to more questions. Here's a question uh, that maybe gets us rolling. The center of the story seems to be a question that Cain asks, uh, and it's a question that we come back to as a church all the time. The Bible comes back to this question all the time. Uh, the question at the center of the story, Cain asks God after, right after the moment, right after he kills his brother, God confronts him. And then the question he says is, am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? Now, the obvious answer to that is, yeah. That's what we want to say, right? Like as Christians, especially, like we got the teachings of Jesus, the obvious answer is yes. Okay, here's where oh, door number one of questions. I'm going to ask a slightly uncomfortable question. We jump right to yes, but is it, should we? Is that, do you really believe that you're your brother's keeper? Oh, wait. And then if so, um, what level are you your brother's keeper? Uh, now, when we ask the question, am I my brother's keeper, what's the question we're really asking? What's, what, maybe another way to say that is, what's, the, what's another way to ask the question, am I my brother's keeper? Yes. Am I responsible for you? Am I responsible for him? Now, is the answer always yes? You're always responsible. Now we want to say no. It's complicated, right? Now, like at what level, where does my responsibility for you end and your responsibility for yourself begin? That's the question. It's a little more, it's a little more complicated. Uh, I have had the opportunity in, in the last 15 years of ministry or so to sit in on a number of interventions. And uh, essentially, in an inter- often I, I was actually trained by this guy who is like, he does this his whole life. And he says, the first thing we do is we gather the family, we gather the loved ones, and we are really, really clear that the most loving thing you can do in this moment is create a healthy boundary. You cannot will them into taking responsibility. They have to want it. In other words... You can't be responsible for their sobriety. You can do everything you can, but you might actually have to actually hold a boundary. That's the word we use, boundary. Uh, we, I heard a yes over here because you're a counselor. And like a counselor knows at some level, I can help you see the pathway forward. I can even help you identify steps to take, but I cannot take the steps for you. Am I my brother's keeper? Um, how about this one? Uh, if somebody's in an abusive relationship... Are they required to change the person who's abusing them? Not so clear, is it? How about this one? All your friends are going to get tanked this weekend. You should come. It's going to be a great time. Let's go. And you say, I don't think I'm going to do that. That doesn't sound like a wise choice. I'm not going to go. And then later you find out that as they had gotten tanked and they got into a car and they got into an accident, are you somehow responsible for that accident? You see how it's a little, it's a little complicated because we want to jump to, yes, we're our brother's keeper, but at some level we also recognize there is a layer of personal responsibility in this whole thing. So at what level am I responsible and where does my responsibility for your life end and where does your responsibility for my life end and where does personal responsibility come into this? What the, um, the rabbis will tell us about the first five books of the Bible, what we call, uh, what we call Torah, is that the Torah 
actually one of the main questions the Bible's trying to help us wrestle with is this question of responsibility. And so what we're going to do over the next five weeks is we're going to try to unpack, uh, like, what level am I responsible? When should I be responsible and not skirt responsibility for your actions? And when does personal responsibility come into play? When does collective responsibility come? All those questions. Uh, We want to wrestle with what level, um, because it's one of the main questions the Bible asks, what level of responsibility do we have? Now, um, uh, this particular story, so the story of Cain and Abel. Uh, we've got a lot of questions that you could ask right away. So first question is, am I responsible? Next set of questions, you you start identifying in the story. All these other questions. Lots of questions you could ask about the story. Um, Why are the brothers sacrificing? Does God tell them to sacrifice? So why are they sacrificing? Both of them seem like I got to sacrifice something. And then why does God like Cain or Abel's better than Cain's? Does God prefer meat to vegetables? Is God a carnivore? Did we learn this now? Like, does God have something on the smoker? Like, like, why does he prefer that? Like, why, God? And then you got, like, okay, you've got this, this language of the, the Abel's blood soaks into the ground and the ground is crying out from Abel. What weird language? Why the weird language? What, what's the deal with the weird language? Once you start asking questions of the story, what you discover is that the questions begin to, uh, they, they give you opportunities to chase rabbits. And like, where does this question lead? Now, I want to pause on some of those questions. We'll come back to them, some of them next week. But there's one question in particular that I think this story wants us to ask. And when you ask the question, it opens up all sorts of interesting things. Uh, the game, actually, let's play the game that we play here often as a church. If you're new with us, I'm sorry, but uh, if you've been with us for a while, um, this is my favorite game. It's called Find the Elephant. Uh, Find the Elephant is a, so for those of you who are new, here are the rules. Uh, often in your Bible, what your biblical writers will do is they will hide in plain sight a, an elephant-sized problem in the text, something that's really weird. It The text wants you to pay attention to the weird thing and ask the question. It's not just there randomly. The text actually, the authors put the weird thing there so that you see it and ask a question about it because the text itself is trying to answer the questions. So you can go to commentaries and and sermons, but the text itself actually holds the answer to the questions it's raising. So what's the elephant-sized problem in this passage? Here's one that I think uh, is worth noting. There's a couple of them, but here's one I think worth noting. Um, right before Cain kills his brother, God says something really kind of weird. Um, notice what he says, verse six. Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, here's the weird part. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Well, that's a weird way to talk about sin, I think at least. Would you agree it's a little bit of a weird, sin is crouching at your door. Let's, uh, let, like, let's imagine you've got somebody in your life who is about to do something that you know could ruin their life. And you've got to stop them. You've got like two lines to say to them that hopefully wakes them up to see the consequences of what they're doing. What language would we do? Like what would we use? We might say things like, hey, I see the temptation that you have in front of you. Or, I know you want to, but it's not good for you. Um, I know your desire is to do the thing, but it's not a great. 
right? We would use language of temptation or desire or, uh, or want. It's, it's clearer. And if there's ever a moment where God should be clear, this is the moment, right? Abel's life is on the line. Why, God, why aren't you being clear? Why use language like sin is crouching at your door? Why that language? It's odd language. And so when you note it, like that's a weird thing. When we hear the word crouching, sin is crouching at your door. What does your brain think? What crouches? Tigers, animals, right? Like animal, like maybe a dog outside the door, or a tiger outside, something that's ready to pounce at you. So why does God use like a metaphor of an animal to talk about sin? Wouldn't it be clear if God said, listen, Cain, I know what you want to do. You're mad. You're angry. I get it. I get it. You think you were wronged. I know you want to. I know you're tempted to take this into your own hands. I know you desire to like, get rid of your brother, but don't do it. Why? Sin is crouching at your door. Unless it's, it is clear to Cain exactly what God is saying to him in this moment. And I propose to you that what God is doing here is very intentional. By linking sin to an animal that is ready to pounce on you. Very intentional language. So we open a door, then we open another door. Why the language of crouching? If this is intentional, why? Uh, And a great question to always ask is, is there another story that you know from your Bible that talks about sin and temptation desire and links it to an animal? Yeah. Uh, the, we're like four chapters in, so like you know, kind of like a power of deduction. Uh, the, the the serpent, the snake, Adam and Eve. One chapter earlier, one chapter earlier, we read about the snake who is tempting Adam and Eve, raising the question: Are these two stories connected? Oh, you're thinking maybe that that feels like a stretch, like really crouching, and you're going to link that to Genesis 3. Well, once you put the two stories side by side, what you begin to notice is there are a lot of things that these two stories have in common. There's a lot of connection points. Let me give you a handful of them. How about this one? Cain kills Abel, and then God confronts Abel how? He asks him a what? A question. How does God confront Adam and Eve after they mess up, after they eat from the fruit? He asks him a question. And uh, another, another question we can ask is, what's the question God asks? What's the question God asks Adam? Do you remember? Where are you? Why are you hot? Where are you? What's the question God asks Cain? Where's your brother? Essentially the same question. Uh, and now, does God not know where Adam is? Does God not know where Abel is? No, he's God. Of course he knows where them. Why does God ask that question? Maybe he wants to see how they would answer the question. So how do they answer the question? Adam says, it's her fault. It's not my fault, it's her fault. That's like classic, we still do that. It's her fault. I ate because she told me to eat, you know. And how does Cain respond? Is it my fault? Am I my brother's keeper? Okay, connections continue. Uh, How about this one? After Adam and Eve sin, what does God pronounce over them? A curse. After Cain sins, what does God pronounce over him? A curse. Okay, so now we're starting to see there's some connections here. Uh, and what is Adam's curse? Do you remember? Work will become 
toil, the ground itself will be burdensome. What is Cain's curse? The ground itself will be toil. Okay. Um, now, as part of the curse, is Adam, are Adam and Eve allowed to stay in the Garden of Eden? No. Is Cain allowed to stay? No, they're both exiled. And which direction do they go? Which direction does Adam and Eve, do they go? What's the, the name of John Steinbeck's classic novel? East of Eden. In which direction does Cain go? East. Okay, do we see the connections? Um, how about this one? Uh, before God sends Adam and Eve out, uh, they're afraid. So they're afraid because they're naked. We'll talk about maybe that next week. Um, but they're afraid because they're naked. And so God does what? He covers them with skin of animals. Uh, Cain's afraid because they're going to kill him. So what does God do? He covers him with a mark. I did this like the Harry Potter mark. I don't know what the mark is. Um, <laughs> it's not Harry Potter probably. It's probably not a good read. Um, how about this one? One more. Uh, uh, after Adam and Eve, what's the very next thing we read about Adam and Eve after they're cast out of the garden? They have What? A kid. What's the very next thing we read about Cain after this whole story? He has a what? A kid. The connections, once you begin to see them, it's almost like the author of Genesis 4 needs you to not just read Genesis 4, the story of Cain and Abel, as a standalone story. It's almost as though these two stories, they're they're interpreting each other to understand this story on its own, if you only read this story on its own, you're going to miss this story. But if you only read this story on its own, you're going to miss this story. What your Bible is doing is it's beginning to stack stories to help you. The stories interpret themselves. Um, once you understand how the stories are getting stacked. Okay, so now we have a connection between Genesis 4 and Genesis 3. Let's leave Genesis 4 for a moment, the, the story of Cain and Abel. And let's go back to that Genesis 3 story and see if we can figure out why would God, in the moment when he's about to kill his brother, use language of animal crouching at the door. Now, here's the part where I might break your, your story. Okay, so be nice to me. I'll do my best. Uh, there is an elephant in, in Genesis 3. It's an elephant-sized problem. It is one of the sized elephant-sized problems that you hand this story to anyone who's reading the story for the first time, whether they're a little child or an older person, uh, you give them this story, they're immediately going to say, that's a problem. You and I, we grew up in the church. Many of us, we grew up in the church, and we've heard the story so many times. Or even if you didn't grow up in the church, you've seen this on uh, The Simpsons or whatever, whatever shows you watch. You've seen the story played out of Adam and Eve, so you don't think about this is a weird story. There's a weird detail in the story here, see if you can spot it. Uh, Genesis, uh, Genesis 3, verse 1. Find the elephant. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Pause there. What's the elephant? What's the elephant? A talking snake? Like, what? Like, that should leap out at you. A talk. Look. When was the last time you had an animal talk to you? Right? Like, come on. That's a weird detail in the story. A talking snake. Is the talking snake somehow connected to Cain? There's a sin is like an animal crouching at your door. Are these two things connected? A talking snake is weird. It wants us to ask the question. 
Especially because for many of us, that detail alone makes the whole story feel like a fairy tale. The whole thing we dismiss because if there's a talking snake, why would I trust any of it? Why is there a talking snake? Did they not think that was weird back then? Like, of course they saw that. You may not know this, but your Bible doesn't have a lot of talking animals. It's not a thing. It's not like it doesn't come up a lot. There's one other example in your Bible. Anybody know it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Balaam. Balaam's donkey. There's a joke there, but I'm not going to make it. Uh, Balaam's donkey talks, right? But in that story, the talking donkey is supposed to be weird. Like the, it's actually kind of a miracle story. But in this story, it's just kind of a passing detail. Why? Why is there a talking snake? This is just a snake that talks. He talks, he talks. Why the talking snake? Okay, so now a question opens the door to a question. Now we've got a puzzle to solve. Why the talking snake? It makes the story even weirder. It gets weirder. Verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say we must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Pause there. What's the elephant in that couple verses? Why is she talking back to a snake? Let's imagine you're going for a walk. You know, you and your boo going for a little pre-Super Bowl walk. And you see a snake, and he's like, ah, you're brave. And then all of a sudden, the snake starts talking to you. Do you. What do you do? Do you have a conversation with a snake? This is supposed to be weird. We're supposed to stop, okay? This is not how... I'm freaking out in that moment. Um, see if you see another uh, elephant. The snake responds, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat... From it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Okay, this is a little bit harder to see, but what's the. Is there an elephant in that one? How does he know God? That's a great question. Great question. I'm looking at something else, though. That's a great question. How about this one? Why does the snake want Eve? And Adam later. Uh, why does he want them to rebel against God in the first place? What's the, what's the snake's motive? Now we want to say, well, the snake is Satan, right? Well, the New Testament tells us that later. But in the story, that's, just, that's a good conclusion. Let's leave that conclusion. Because if you jump to, con- to easy conclusions too early, you might miss something. So let's just save that for now. But why would, what's the snake's motive? Why does the snake against God? This just feels like a, a, from this story alone, that seems like a, okay. What do we do with this? Why does a snake want Eve to eat the fruit? To not trust God, but why? Why does a snake say, you know what, God? Okay, so that, now we got a puzzle. We got ourselves a little riddle. Uh, what do we do with this story? Now, again, I'm going to break it again. We'll, 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 we'll help put it together. I got to show you, I think the answer to this question, I've got to show you another weird moment in your Bible. Between, so chapter one is creation story. Chapter 3, the snakes, the snake and the temptation. Chapter 4, the brothers, uh, the, the murder. Um, but chapter 2, story of the Garden of Eden, there's a weird moment in chapter 2 that, again, breeze right by the weird moment. I think it's fun to stop, so let's pay attention to the weird moment. Uh, this is the story of God creating Adam. And the first time we read the words, it is not good in the Bible. Uh, verse 18 of chapter 2. The Lord God said... It's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Okay, pause the game here. Let's pause here and uh, let's play 
a game. Anybody watch Sesame Street growing up? Kids still watching? My kids don't watch. It's too slow for them, but uh, it's a good. (laughs) Let's play the game that we learned in Sesame Street for those of us who grew up on it. Uh, The game is called What Happens Next? You know the game? Remember the game? Uh, Kermit the Frog, and he's like, there's a lever, and if I cut the lever, the thing. What happens next? If you're going to stop the story here, God sees it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. What happens next? He's going to make a helper. And who's that helper going to be? Eve. That's what happens next, especially if we know the end of the story. He's going to make Eve. God sees, I made a person, and it's not good that that person's alone. I should have made, it, should have made two people. So what I'm going to do is I'll make this beautiful woman. He'll see her in the garden. His loneliness will go away. They'll have their meet cue, and then they'll date in the garden. It'll be great. Uh, that's, that's what happens next, except... It's not at all what happens next. Let me tell you what happens next. Verse 19, the next verse. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild... What are we laughing? Okay. Lord God formed out of the ground... I don't know what's going on. Check the zipper. We're good. Um, Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the Lord, so the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. Then this line. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord made a woman. Now we get to the end of the story. This is how it's supposed to end. Made a uh, woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. So God says, I'm going to make a partner. Like Adam's lonely. I'll make a partner. Yada, yada, yada. He makes Eve. That's the... Here's the question, though. Why the weird dating game? That's probably what you're laughing at, right? Did we get it? Yeah. Why... The weird, bizarre dating game between those two. Why does God prance out all the animals and he's like, ah, I'm a bird. And then he's like, yeah, that's not your wife. How about, and like, why the weird dating game? Like, why did, did, did God really think, like, I, I know what I'll do. Like, you're lonely? Here's a flamingo, right? Like, look at her long legs. Like, dude, what did he think was going to happen? Like, 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 no, not into it. Okay, how about... Uh, I don't know, man's best friend. Look at the puppy. Look at the puppy. Like, you will love the puppy. Like, why not man's best friend? That can be your... No? No? Okay. How, how about... Uh, how about a hip- Mrs. Hippopotamus? Got a lovely ring to it. She's adoring. She will love you forever. Why the... If God knows, and God does know, right? We agree that God knows that this isn't going to work out. God is smart. If God, God is smart, God knows, like, no, that none of this is going to play out for Adam. Why, why this line, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Like, like, like to quote Michelle Tanner from Full House, duh, right? Like, duh, like, you prance on all the animals, like, of course, like, none of these animals are going to be your person. Why does God go through the weird dating game? Why does, what does Adam need in the weird dating game that God knows Adam needs in this weird dating game? Why prance out each of the animals just so he can be like, uh, we'll call you this, but you're not me. We'll call you this, but you're not me. We'll call you this, but you're not. Like, no, this, is, this, isn't, this isn't right. We have ourselves a puzzle. Now, let's go back to the snake. Remember the snake, chapter three. We're introduced to the snake in chapter three. 
now that we have kind of the, the, the conundrum, what other details? Is there anything else odd about your snake that you meet in Genesis chapter 3? Again, we're poking holes at an old story we grew up with, but is there anything else odd? The snake talks. We said that's odd. It's weird that the snake is talking, but is there anything else odd about the snake? How about this as a prompt? How does a snake, how do snakes get around? We say they slither, right? Like the snake slithers. Uh, um, I got a great video of walking with my kids and a snake comes across my daughter's feet. They slither and she screams. Um, That's what snakes do. They slither. Does this snake slither? Now we don't have direct evidence in this moment in the story, but later in the story, when the, when the, so Adam and Eve are given a curse and then the snake is given a curse, we are read, we're, we are read, we are told this about that curse on the snake. Verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you'll eat dust all the days of your life. You'll crawl on your belly and eat dust. Assuming that prior to this moment, the snake didn't crawl on its belly. We have ourselves, what's weird about the snake? We've got ourselves a talking, walking snake. That is odd. How about this? Anything else odd about this snake? Uh, How about the snake's intelligence level? Remember how we're introduced to the snake? Uh, The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. It's another way to talk about something being crafty. We have ourselves a walking, talking snake who is quite intelligent. Anything else weird about the snake? How about the snake diet? Again, we don't have direct evidence in the story, but we have it in the curse. If the curse on the snake is you're going to crawl on your belly and eat dust, ugh, gross food, what does that presuppose the snake is eating before he's eating dust? Good food? Maybe. We have ourselves a walking, talking snake who enjoys good things, sophisticated food. Steak, maybe. I don't know. Like, enjoys good food. When you hear this, you think about a walking, talking being who is smart, enjoys good things. Do you think about a snake or do you think about a person? Ah, the snake has got like a human-like quality to him. Forcing the question, what makes a snake a snake and a person a person? Imagine you're on an ethics panel for determining human rights, right? Like we're talking about chat GPT and like when is an AI? Like, so imagine we might have to be here someday. Like what makes a human a human and a robot a robot or a human a human and in this case, an animal an animal? And you've got your list of evidence and you say, you know what? What makes a human a human is we can have a conversation with each other and we can tell stories and we can communicate, we can talk. And the animal defense lawyer says, but the snake talked too. And you say, well, okay, what makes humans humans is we can get around on two legs and we're not like crawling on all fours. That's the animals do that. We walk on two legs and the snake defense lawyer says, yeah, but the snake does here too. Yeah, but we're smart and we can invent things and we can like see a dream and a vision and we can create that thing. And the snake is more crafty than all the other wild animals. Okay, but we enjoy good things. We, We have like a level of sophistication about us. We enjoy good things. Yeah, but so does the snake. What? At some level, if if the snake passes the human test and all these levels, can we still call the snake a snake? Or is this snake something else, more than a snake, maybe even a human? 
Can we call the snake a snake? And the answer the Torah gives, those first five books of the Bible, the answer the Torah gives is, yes, this is a snake. Don't be confused by this. It's a snake. This is not a human being. This is a snake. Raising the question, what's the difference? There's a certain crisis that the Torah is trying to create inside of you of what is different between a human and an animal. We still have this debate today. Like, what's the difference? When will we know an AI is not a human if an AI does all the things that a human does? Your robot does all the same things. What's fundamentally different? This is the crisis that's in us. What's fundamentally different? We're told animals have emotions now, right? Like, so what's fundamentally different? Now, that's the puzzle. Uh, that's, uh, ask a vegan. They'll tell you that animals have emotion. Uh, what's the puzzle? What's the puzzle? What's the puzzle? Um, we've, got, we've got ourselves a puzzle. Again, let the text answer the questions that you, it will also raise. The same text will answer the question. So we've kind of broken the story. Let's put it back together. What makes humans different than animals according to the Torah? Okay, according to this particular text. And to get made in God's image, great, great answer. Uh, to get at that, let me, let me add to the made in God's image piece because uh, that's 100% true. Like, that's the one thing we're, we're told. But how does Adam and Eve know that the snake is not made in God's image? What is God's image in this? Um, is it walking, talking? Is there something else about God that we need to know? Now, um, let's go back to... Uh, what the snake says to the woman. There's something interesting about the snake. This, now, this is a little bit unfair because it's a language thing. So I'm going to try to help you figure out how to do this on your own, but it's a little hard because it's a language issue. But notice what the snake says, verse 1. First thing he says, Did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? Okay, so here's a question to ask. Is this the, is this, if you're a snake and you're trying to trap Adam and Eve, is this how you ask that question? If you're trying to trap them, is it, did God really say you may not eat from a tree? Now, wouldn't, you, wouldn't you instead do with the Snow White game of like, look how beautiful the fruit is. I bet it's delicious. Like, why the question this way? And then to, to further the, the, the conundrum with this particular question that the snake asked, if you are reading this in English, in like the NIV, and then in the ESV, and then the NLT, what you're going to discover is almost every translation in English will translate this a little bit different from each other. And all, so if you do that game, you realize, oh, wow, this must be difficult to translate. Something about the question the translators are making decisions on, but it's hard to translate. So what is it in the original language? Okay, there's a couple of good tools. Someday I'll share them with you, but there's a couple of good tools to do the word for word. What is the question that is causing all the translators to say, well, I think, it, I think what the question is, is this. And somebody else says, no, I think it's this. Here in, here's the, the hard to, to translate passage in Hebrew. Uh, in Hebrew, it reads, Af kai amar Elohim lo techlo mikol etz hagan. Let me walk you through it word for word. Uh, there's af. Af in Hebrew literally means even. Even. Uh, the next word, kai, uh, is translated here as indeed. It can be translated indeed or if. It's a conjunction. Indeed or if. So even, I think if is the better candidate in this one. So even, indeed, or even if. Even if. Uh, the word amar is easier. Amar is said. Even if he said or has said, uh, Elohim is God. So even if, 
even if God said. Okay, so that's a... Now, uh, the next phrase, lo teklo mikol et hagan. Don't, a little bit easier, don't eat from all the trees. That's the, that's the sentence. Even if God said, don't eat from all the trees. So translators hear that and they say, well, come on, that's not even a full sentence. We'll, we'll make it better. We'll fix it. So we'll, we'll make it easier to understand. Did God really say don't eat from all the trees? Like, that's how we fix it. But in the Hebrew, it's even if God said don't eat from all the trees. Here's why I like the Hebrew. I think it makes perfect sense. Snake sees the woman. Even if God said don't eat from all the trees. What's, impl- what's the implied ending to that? So what? Even if God said, don't eat from all the trees, so what? So what? That's the temptation. So what? Even if God said, don't eat from all the trees, so what? Do you want it? Does it look good to you? Eat it. You're just, Eve, you're just an animal like us. You're just like me. When animals want something, we have instincts, we have desires, we have cravings, we take it. That's what animals do. Eve, you're an animal. You're just like us. You want it, even if God said you can't have it. So what? Do you see animals asking God, should I kill this animal or not this animal? No. That's not how we think. We're animals, Eve. You're just like one of us. Even if God said no, so what? Here's what the crisis the Torah wants you to see. What makes humans different than animals? What makes the made in God's image piece of our humanity different than an animal? And what it seems that the Torah is trying to push us to is we can say no. Why does God put a tree in the garden in the first place? Is it to try to help us to see that part of what it means to be a human is we can have cravings, urges, desires, And we can choose to say no to the cravings, urges, and desires. Your dog, you can train them a little bit, but by and large, you put a bowl of food in front of your dog, they're going after the food. But as humans, we don't have to play by those rules. Why does God parade all of the animals in front of Adam and say, any suitable helpers here? Because Adam, you're not like them. You're not a flamingo or a hippo or dog. You're not... This is not who you are. You're not fundamentally an animal. Cain is in the moment. He's angry. God comes to Cain and says, Cain, sin, like that snake, is crouching at your door. It wants you to think that you can't stop it. That you have to, you're angry, you have to respond. But you don't. You are not an animal, Cain. You can do what is right. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted, Cain? You can actually choose to not act on your desires, to not act on your instincts, to say no and make a choice to do what is right. The animal world is ruled by instinct and desire. We humans, made in the image of God, can make a choice to do, to, to say no. We are not animals. We're also not God. We can't make up the rules. We're something, humans are something fundamentally other. So the question of the story is, well, okay, what voice are you going to listen to? This is what the, the Genesis, the Torah needs us to, this starts the conversation. 
which voice, when it comes to choosing your responsibility, who you're listening to, whose voice do we listen to? What we want or what God says is best for us? Uh, The end of the Torah will end with Moses saying, choose today the path before you. Do you choose life? Today I put before you life and death. You choose. Which path will we choose? Those are the questions that begin and end your Torah. Whose voice? Uh, What it means to be human at a very fundamental level is even when it's hard and we really, really want to, we can say no. When our cravings are screaming at us, we can say no. Um, there's something my wife and I say to our kids all the time. Uh, when they, they'll, they'll often say, well, that's really hard. And we'll say, I know, but you can do hard things. You can do hard things. What the Torah wants you to see, personal responsibility, this question, is that we can do hard things. Cain, I know it's hard, but you can do hard things. You can say no to the party. It doesn't feel like that at the time. Like everyone's going. If I say no to the party, then they're going to think I'm... You can. You can say no to the drink. You can say no to uh, the... You're on the special diet where you're working really hard not to eat sweets, and then they, somebody brings in a box of donuts into the staff lounge. You can say no to the craving. Your alarm clock goes off. You're trying to like get a new exercise habit together. Your alarm clock goes off. Everything in you wants to stop the alarm clock, hit the snooze. You can say no to that urge. The Torah begins by showing us this. Um, someone's telling a joke, and it's like, yeah, it's kind of funny, but I, I don't want them to think that that joke's okay because it's mocking that person, and that's not okay with me. You can choose to not laugh. There's a really juicy bit of gossip that if I know this thing, that right now if I share this thing, everyone's going to be looking at me because I have more answers and I'm going to be the center of the attention for a minute. You can choose to not share the gossip. He really wants you to go to bed with him and like he's just pressuring you and pressuring you and pressuring you and pressuring you and pressuring you. You can choose to say no to that. Uh, the website, like you've been trying and it's like you keep wanting to click and click and click and it's like, I, you can choose. This is what makes humans humans. Now, sometimes um, someone forces themselves. That's something else. We'll deal with that next week. Uh, sometimes sin moves into a spot where it becomes an addiction. And to just say like, you can choose to say no to that drink. You're thinking it's an addiction. It's not, yeah, it, addiction's hard and um, it's like a whole nother beast. We'll deal with that in a couple of weeks. We'll talk about addiction Um, but there are things in our lives, every single one of us, I'm guessing there's something you want in your life, some goal you're trying to go after, some something, whether it's physical fitness, eating healthier, um, or some kind of a, like a habit that's becoming habitual, like a habitual thing that's becoming almost like an addiction. You can choose to say no. That's what Genesis wants you to see. You're made in God's image. Um, I love how uh, Chief Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, uh, late, chief rabbi. Um, He passed away recently. Um, But he talks about this. He calls, he argues that this story, this set of stories, is the beginning of uh, the birth of what today we refer to as victim mentality. And he says this. He says, in the past, men blamed the stars, the fates, the furies, and the gods. Today, they blame their parents, their environment, their genes, the educational system, the media, the politicians. And he goes on. It's not my fault. It's the boss's fault. It's not my fault. It's her fault. My wife's fault. Like she's constantly, it's her fault. It's not my fault. The 
Krispy Kreme turn the donut sign on that says that they're fresh and I can't say no to the red light on the Krispy Kreme. Like, whatever it is, whatever it is, the temptation is still, even if God said, so what? Uh, but what we realize at the beginning of Scripture is that we are human beings. We are not animals. We do not have to say yes. This weird story about a talking snake and a tree, like this is trying to open us up to the fundamental of, fundamentals of what does it mean to be a human? You can't say no. I have to remind myself this all, of this all the time. I can say no. Will it be easy? No. The, sometimes the craving is urging at you. The temptation is there and it's like saying, come on. Uh, but you can say no. Uh, next week, we'll pick the story back up and we'll talk about, that's how the stories are similar. There's a way in which the Cain and Abel story and the Adam and Eve story are fundamentally different. And we'll pick up the story there next week and we'll think about moral responsibility. What is, when am I responsible for you? And when are you responsible for me? Um, but this morning, I, I want to sit on this one and uh, we're going to take communion. Um, one, one of the beautiful pictures with communion is uh, right after Jesus celebrated Passover with his friends, he was out in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he himself said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. In other words, I really want to, but I'm struggling. And then what you notice he does is he asks his father to give him the strength. Uh, my hunch is that there are some of you this morning, if you're like me, um, that there are things that you're like, I've, just, I've, been wanting to con- I've been wanting to conquer this. I've been wanting to do better at this. And uh, the Spirit's willing. I've been wanting it for a long time, but I just keep falling back into old patterns. And um, this morning, when you take communion, I want to just invite you to invite God into that and say, God, I don't know how to do this. Now, maybe for you, it's not your thing. It's somebody in your life that you know is carrying something. I want to invite you to leverage your prayers on behalf of them. Uh, we have three stations of communion um, on the, in the front here. Uh, the two on the edges have a gluten-free option. This one will not have a gluten-free option. Rob Houseman in the back, uh, Pastor Rob, will um, be walking around. If you would like someone to come to you to serve you, he would love to do that. Uh, and what we do here is you'll take the bread and um, the little piece of bread and dip it into the cup and then take individually, um, which I know is kind of weird, but... Uh, um, again, don't just let this be a picture, a symbol, or a metaphor. Allow this to be a moment where you're saying to God, God, I tried. I just need your help. Maybe you have to do it on behalf of a child or a friend or a loved one, but I need you to join them in the fight because God wants to. Let me have a word of prayer with you. Uh, Lord, I pray for the church. I pray for my friends. Lord, I pray for each of us in the thing that is I'm guessing, Lord, your Holy Spirit right now is burning something on each of our minds. And Lord, I pray that you would take that thing, drop it from just our minds into our hearts. And then, Lord, give us the ability, give us a reminder again and again throughout this next day and this next week that you have created us different. We can say no. Um, Lord, you've, you've created us in your image. And we are not just like the animals. Uh, Lord, as we take communion, would you remind us that we do not take communion just as victims of uh, whatever life throws our way. But Lord, um, as Paul, the Apostle Paul said to an early church, Lord, we take communion as more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. Uh, Lord, we love you and we pray this in your name. And everybody said, amen. 
We hope that this week's message has brought you both some challenge and some blessing. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, find us on the web at www.southharbor.org or find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m., you can find our service streamed live on our Facebook page. And so from all of us here at South Harbor and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.